0: For the many podcasts, not the few, strike up the band!
1: This is a completely pointless theoretical discussion.
2: So sorry that I insist that it fits the data, but it doesn't fit the data.
3: If Nigel Farage joined the Green Party and then you're just like, ah...
0: Yeah, here we are again then. It's How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to a huge political year. I'm Matt Shawley, joined as ever by new Labour mastermind Peter Madison, Policy McKenzie, former Nick Clegg's Brain, and Tory Brainbox Daniel Finkelstein. How are we all?
2: I'm fine, thank you very much. Matt, how are you though? Because you have just finished the Rishi Sunak intermittent diet. Yes. I'm
0: alright. 36 hours without food is quite a long time it turns out it particularly is. when my only
2: hobby in life is eating he does actually do this because he came round to my house once on a Monday morning and we offered him some cake or a biscuit and he actually he said no I'm on an intermittent diet and if you're my size and you look at him that just seemed completely absurd but he was totally serious about it
3: but that's that's kind of the point the though, t- isn't yeah, it <laughs> the thin people are the ones who manage their food
2: intake yeah, yeah. so yes,
1: I, you know. I, I, I'm really very <laughs> (laughs) unsure about this sunak fasting
0: yeah
1: Yeah, i think it could have electoral implications (laughs) 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 i think he he looks like a stick he looks too thin i I think he i think it makes people feel that he's sort of a bit underwhelming uh i think it sort of shrinks him i
0: just think think he'd
1: be better
3: if he was round no i
0: just (laughs) think he would be better if he would just a more literally a more substantial figure
1: well, I don't want to be sort of
0: yeah. sort of physicalist about this or fattist. But it didn't about George it. But I do, I do I so, George Osborne. Yes. I do actually think George Osborne on the five two that worked. It did well up until the point when he lost his job.
2: I did just wonder whether um, Rishi really needed to do it, but it's uh, doesn't it, it also it's make
1: him rather sort of tetchy and irritable? I must admit, I would fasting. not have,
2: last night. I was
0: really, really trying not to be grumpy at home, but it was difficult. I don't think I should have been like taking calls from. Glad he'd be pooted at 7 o'clock last night.
3: Maybe they have, like, an emergency snack he, next to the emergency phone yeah. so that he can just, you know, like, up his blood and sugar. Is,
2: there is another element to it, because I think it was are correct, including the tetchiness from personal, you know, from my own experience of doing Do you get like very tetchy? Yeah, I can get tetchy when I'm trying to lose weight. But Rishi Sunak is just an extraordinarily disciplined person. That's the other thing. It's just it's very interesting to watch, and I've rarely seen somebody so completely focused in the way that he is, and, and I've there's some criticism of it, by the way. So, some people think it's you're getting too much in the detail, like they said about Jimmy Carter, who ended up, I think, booking the, uh, organizing the White House tennis racer all by himself. But the, um, <laughs> he did really because he took everything into his control. But, but, but Rishi Sunak, he's very disciplined, and this is an element of that. So, to, to keep on when you're that thin already being with intermittent. I think done. being
1: disciplined right. is very good, you know, if you're a prime minister. But if you're also so seemingly controlled and robotic, mm. I think this is having quite an effect on his persona and how people view him.
0: My favourite, I hadn't uh, thought about this before. My favourite reaction to it, because obviously this, it was in the Sunday Times uh, that he does this. He doesn't eat from 5pm on a Sunday till 5am on a Tuesday. Does
3: that mean he has to get up
0: at 5am? Well, I thought that, because I, be- like, I went so to this- till 6. I wasn't like set the alarm up to
2: go a bit 5. <laughs> Most Prime
0: Ministers do get up that yeah, early, yeah. though, but because a, they have to work. A, a Tory MP told the Times... Just something, in one sentence, man, just like everything, just have a go at it before everything. I'm sure banning vapes goes down brilliantly amongst the Californian fasting community, but our voters want the boats stopping and their wage packets growing. Just like everything in a single sentence. It
3: is a bit of a sort of LinkedIn tech bro vibe, yeah, 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 isn't yeah. it? You know? I get up at 3 a.m. No, I get up at 2.30 I'm a a.m. bit
2: resistant to the idea that there's something that wrong with either the, either showing the self-discipline to do this or um, even being sufficiently capable of technology and understanding of the financial services that you could hold he, down a major he job just in seem, California. He just that seems too, to be quite a good qualification. Peter's to really warming this. No, no, I just series. think he's, he's too
1: just... much on autopilot. I think he just needs to be himself, relax, lash this out. This is
2: himself. So that, that <laughs> this That's is getting movie. worse and worse. <laughs> we've
0: discussed this before about whether or not um, you know let Rishi be Rishi works because you know that might not be what they want. But we've had a question. If you want to email and get in touch with you, you can email us how to win at thetimes.co.uk. Attach a voice note if you want because then we can uh, we can hear you as well. Like this question from Mike. Kyle, the podcast is great, the debate is really insightful, but can someone ask Daniel what the answer is to the
1: show's title, How to Win an Election? In each episode, Danny invariably comments that such and such will not change voting behaviour, or it will be marginal. Whereas Polly
0: generally suggests that everything can change behaviour. Are they both right? And uh, just to give you a sense of what Mike is talking about, here is a flavour from just one episode.
2: I don't think any of these things, by the way, are election-determining issues. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be an election outcome-determining election. These don't affect the, you know, the big results because very few things really do. So, Daddy, what does? So, I'm trying to distinguish between signal and noise, and there are various things that definitely are signal, one of which, the biggest of which, is the economy. Um, and it's possible to win an election when you are a not running with the economy. In other words, the economy is going well and you're the opposition, uh, or the economy is going badly and you're the government, providing you find some other big issue which the other party can't follow. There's a very good book by a woman called Lynn Vavrek, uh, an American political scientist explaining what's called Why Message Matters. So she's arguing absolutely with me that quite a lot of these things that we discuss are noise rather than signal. But she she doesn't argue, nor would I, that nothing makes any difference. And another thing, we've just been discussing an aspect of it, people's reaction to leadership makes a difference. So once people are determined that Ed Miliband, or in fact, William Hague, whom I really liked, were not somebody they thought could be Prime Minister, none of the things that went up and down really affected the outcome, even though we thought they were going to. So all I'm trying to do, maybe I'm overdoing it, perhaps I am, but I I do, because certainly within Westminster, and that's important too, um, you, you know somebody could be deposed I always think of Donald uh, Dominic Cummings leaving um, 10 Downing Street with a cardboard box you know the in the these up and down things did for him and that was significant in terms of the theme of the Johnson government so I'm not, I'm not a nihilist I'm not saying nothing matters I'm just saying there are these big things and I would say leadership uh, finding the big issue if the issue is not uh, the economy, mm-hmm. and the length of time the incumbent party has been in power. It's not that nothing affects apart from that, but those are massively the biggest things. Uh,
3: so, I mean, Danny's taking the Tolstoy position that great men do not affect history. I shall take the Karl Popper version, which is that they do um, and can. I, I guess, um, of course, Danny's right. Like, and, and you do get, if you spend time in the Westminster bubble, a, a sort of delusional belief that, Anybody other than you is paying attention to the niceties or who read which article or, oh, it must have been Kemi Badnock that briefed that one. You know, like there's incredible amounts of noise. And yet that is the ecosystem in which leaders develop. Um, and it's the ecosystem as well in which policy is forged. And those are the things that over time do agglomerate to create uh success or failure in the economy, success or failure as leaders. And so, in a way, you have to bear in mind that, you know, the, the noise is the uh, is the environment in which politics happens. And that's what, you know, when we were talking about by-elections, Danny made the point that correctly, by-elections are a terrible predictor of voting behaviour. But... Because they sort of smash into that noisy, chaotic Westminster system, they can have all sorts of ripple effects that then then somehow do, like the butterfly, create a thunderstorm.
1: I'm not sure you can make such a big difference between noise and signals. I mean, if you look at the government at the moment, there's an enormous amount of noise coming out of the government, out of the Conservative uh, Party all these sort of infighting and gossiping and backbiting and everything, and that sends a signal about the party that it's not fit for government anymore under Jeremy Corbyn. There's an enormous amount of noise came out of the Labour Party during that period and everyone sort of read the signal quite rightly, which is, you know, that the Labour Party wasn't fit for office either. So, you know, noise generates signals which are picked up by the electorate and they draw the obvious conclusion.
3: But the most important of all is, again, as policy, Mackenzie, right, is that very often we get into this system where, because it's the big stuff that shapes the politics, that that leads to a certain kind of political activist, special advisor, minister, thinking that it's only the politics that matters and the governing doesn't. Mm. And that is one of the reasons why we're stuck oh. in such a mess in terms of how the country's actually run.
2: No, so I agree with that completely. I missed out, because obviously there's a link between what politicians do and and then how it impacts on people's lives, but people notice it because of how it impacts on their life. I missed out one crucial thing, which is the assembling of demographic coalitions and how that changes. So the Conservative Party is sort of, I, I've joked, made a decision to sack its old electorate and hire a new one, and it's finding the hiring process quite difficult. Um and <laughs> and, um, the, you know, the, the, whereas the sacking was easy. Um, so uh, I think that when you're when you're looking at these big political parties, they make a decision about who they want to represent, who they stand for. And the reason that Blairism was so successful, in my view, was that Philip Gould and Peter and Tony Blair, they all appreciated that its existing demographic coalition was too small uh, and were trying to add onto it members of the middle class and appeal to those people... So that really, really does matter in the election. At the moment, I think Labour is going for a broader coalition. Keir Starmer's trying to see whether he can add voters without losing the ones that he's already got. And he's doing that, I think, reasonably skillfully. And uh, the Conservative Party's engaged in a a battle, really, over who its demographic coalition will be and could end up with nobody. Yeah, it's called Big Tent Politics.
0: Um, well, we'll come to forming an actual coalition in the event of a hung parliament in a minute. Peter, I just want to ask you, with your as a, as a former Northern Ireland secretary, a, a big moment that the, the Northern Ireland somebody is coming back, but it's a huge moment that it means the first minister is going to be from Sinn Féin. Oh, I think this is going to be a landmark development in uh, Northern Ireland's history. I mean,
1: first of all, you know, thank goodness the DUP, uh, led by Geoffrey Donaldson, have seen sense and he's shown some bravery. Also, all credit to Chris Heaton-Harris, by the way, the Secretary of State, who has shown considerable patience and skill uh, in getting the party uh, to this point. But yes, it means that for the first time ever... An Irish Republican, Michelle O'Neill, will become the first minister in Northern Ireland. I think she will conduct herself well and sensitively in that role, uh, and so too she might because, uh, you know, this is still fragile. But here's another point as well. During the course of the coming year, you're going to see an election in the Irish Mm. Republic where I think... Sinn Féin, the Republicans, uh, leading in the polls or very near with, uh, along with Shin, with uh, Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle. If the Sinn Féin play their cards right in Northern Ireland and it does them credit and status and they look as if they're you know, behaving in a responsible way, this will broaden their appeal, other things being equal in the Irish Republic and you could see them topping the poll in the Irish general election in the coming year. That, too, would be an amazing landmark development.
0: And does that then lead to a poll on unification?
1: No, not necessarily. That would depend on where the public uh, go on both sides of the border. Uh, If the uh, British government concludes uh, from a consistent pattern of opinion polls that there seems to be an emerging majority in Northern Ireland... Uh, for a border poll uh, to take place, uh, then they would be obliged to undertake one, but it wouldn't just be in the north, it would be in the south as well. But do you think a that's, the, do you think that's the direction we're heading in? Not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily. Um, but I think the DUP and I think the cause of unionism uh, have done themselves a quite a lot of damage uh, by holding out against... Uh, the, the Assembly elections over the last Peter, two years.
2: can I ask you a question? If there was a... a an, um, this is an open question, not, not sort of angled. But I, I, if there was to be a border poll of that kind, would, um, would the Labour government take a stance on whether or not there should be the, the, the Northern Ireland should remain inside the union because our official position as a country is we'd have no selfish strategic interest in um, in the union. So with Northern Ireland, so where what where would Labour go on it? That think?
1: would be the same. They would not campaign. They would not lean either way. Uh, both parties have accepted, on the basis of the original Good Friday, Belfast Good Friday Agreement, that should a border poll, two border polls take place, north and south, then the British government uh, would stand back and allow the public to have their say
0: well it's fascinating we'll see what what happens because like you said it's a big year for elections and one of those is in uh in ireland as well as in uh, in this country right up next we are going to look at coalitions actual coalitions how do you form one uh how do you get on with your opponents and who's got the best snacks we'll do that next on how to win an election This is How to Win Election with me, Matt Shawley, joined by Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. Now, we're going to talk about coalitions, not necessarily coalitions within, uh, within parties, but between them. We had an email from Tim O'Brien saying, could you do a programme on coalitions? Even the Labour and Conservative parties affected coalitions, but is that better than actual coalitions formed out in the open between parties? Now, Polly, this seems like a good opportunity to come to you first, having been involved in the formation of the last coalition.
3: I was. I'm a bit nervous that I might unleash some Mandelson snark mm. uh, because I know Peter has opinions about uh, both the Liberal Democrats and the process that went I'm we went just through in 2010. warming
1: up. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> so just you know, so uh, in 2010, Nick Clegg had said, you know, sort of mostly defensively, but through the whole election campaign, it, we will see who has won the most votes and the most seats, and we pointed out that. A, different parties could win the most votes and the most seats. And he just continued to say, most votes and most seats. David Cameron did win both the most votes and the most seats. And so Nick said uh, that it should be for him... To take the lead in deciding how he wanted to proceed and whether he wanted to form a coalition. That in itself was controversial because, uh, in as much as we have sort of assumed constitutional rules, it's that the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister until he's not the Prime Minister, and it should have been Gordon Brown who had the first opportunity. But uh, so that we then started some talks with the Conservative Party um, on the basis of uh, a, a document which was produced by um, their negotiating team, uh, Oliver Letwin, I believe... uh did lots of the typing, um, drawing together... <laughs> but pre, but with, in the run-up to the election, they No, 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 this, is after, the, okay. this all after the election. Okay. Once it was clear, no, no talks happened until mm. after David... Mm. After mm. Nick Clegg had said for David Cameron to make the first move. The Conservatives had started thinking about Oh, of course this they had, of Before they the election, election. Yeah, very yeah, yeah, important. Yeah, they Labour had not. Yeah. Um, they, and, and he then gave a speech, Cameron gave a speech where he made... And that was written by Steve Hilton. He said he was going to make a big, open and generous offer to the Double Democrats. They then made that offer. Um, I I collected a lot of documents in the middle of the night, but I'm pretty sure that I collected that offer document from Steve Hilton and Ed Llewellyn in the lift lobby of Normanshaw North, which is one of the buildings on the parliamentary estate. I do remember that Steve was wearing shorts, (laughs) of course, and no shoes. shoes, Ed Llewellyn was dressed immaculately, despite whatever hour of the night it was but that might have been the confidence and supply agreement. I don't know, my memory's blurred. But essentially, we started a process facilitated by the Cabinet Office of actually negotiating with uh, with the Conservatives. And, and we started basically with the easy stuff. We started with, for example, uh, the green energy transition, where actually because of where Cameron was and where Oliver Letwin was and where the Lib Dems were, that was an easy conversation. And we slowly built up a programme that was based on the things we already agreed on, which was really the compassionate conservative stuff that Cameron had been talking about to build a sense of momentum, and then we got to the stuff where we were stuck, um, and that's when it was clear that that we were stuck on things like electoral reform or tuition fees, um, and that's when it seemed sensible to open talks with the Labour Party. This is where Peter comes into the story. We also got a document. It was definitely it was uh, written by Gordon. Brown, or at least it had gone to him because it was in his characteristic font, uh, thick, bold, type, because of his um, eyesight difficulties, offering, uh, by contrast, almost nothing. The offer that came in from the Labour Party was, we will continue with the Labour Party's programme of government and we'll have a review of electoral reform and a review of votes at 16... Possibly a review of local government finance because they really knew how to tap in with. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't. I didn't keep the document, but it was very much a sort of yeah. We'll sort of review a few things that we think that you care about. Uh, by contrast, uh, but there were talks. Peter Peter's was. Twitching. I believe Peter was involved in those talks. Those talks were held in uh, one of the corner rooms in Portcullis House. Uh, I didn't go into the room for those conversations. I was in the room. Just net- the lads. Just the lads. I was in a room <laughs> next door. So Actually, th- Harriet
0: Harman was there. Oh, oh of course. Of course. Yeah, you know, she told me yesterday, she said, well, haven't meeting with anybody in the room. Yeah.
3: But there were a series of conversations between uh, the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, but they were always much more cursory. Gordon Brown then, uh, I think, in order to facilitate those talks, I don't know Peter will have much more insight into Gordon's uh, thinking uh, at the time, but possibly to unlock a coalition because it seemed like the Liberal Democrats would get into bed with the Conservative Party. Gordon Brown resigned. David Cameron went to the 1922 committee and persuaded them that the only way to get into power was to offer this AV referendum to the Liberal Democrats. They came back to us with that. By this time, nobody had really slept for 72 hours. Um, at one point, I booked a taxi for, like, the next morning, but it was already 2am, so the next morning was... I. So I was standing outside my house at 5am waiting for the taxi and I realized they I'd booked it for the next day. So that's the level of <laughs> high-quality thinking that was going in. Um, but essentially that, that that tipped over the edge for the parliamentary party, uh, the Liberal Democrats. So we had a series of kind of big meetings of the parliamentary party. At that time, what, 52, 54, Lib Dem MPs plus mm. our peers, those were held in uh, <coughs> Westminster Hall Um uh,
0: I remember uh, loitering outside that. There was a
3: lot of a lot, a lot of, of loitering, loitering, lots of traipsing back and forward into into the cabinet office and secret things. There were a couple of phone calls uh, between Nick Clegg and David Cameron. I remember one moment, uh, and and this is an important moment for me because people so often say that Nick Clegg and David uh, Danny Alexander did that deal to get ministerial cars, as if as if the car is the thing that matters. But anyway. I've I very clearly heard Nick and David Cameron talking. It was just me in the office with him, and Cameron was only had one side of the of the conversation. But Cameron was trying to get Nick to talk about jobs. Because he thought he could get the Lib Dems over the line with just jobs, and Nick in government jobs in government. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know if I don't know precisely what he offered him, but Nick would not take jobs. He wanted policies. Classic Lib Dem. Uh, He wanted policies. (laughs) And And that's how. Who had the best snacks? snacks? Uh, Oliver Letwin brought the snacks himself. Uh, Viennese uh, biscuits. They're sort of like chocolate sandwich biscuits. Mm -hmm. Every time I eat those, I think of Oliver Letwin
0: and Labour snacks.
3: Uh, No snacks, I believe. No snacks Peter at all. It doesn't, Always take, bring doesn't snacks. take much
1: to buy off the Liberal Democrats, does <laughs> it? Just as a sort of couple I of I think I was the only business. one who ate them. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, um, what Polly says in essence is all perfectly correct. But let me just boil it down <laughs> two, two essential, to a long story yeah. two, yeah. two <inaudible> essential dynamics. One was the sort of burgeoning public school boy bromance between Nick Clegg <laughs> and David Cameron. Nick Clegg definitely didn't want no. to jump into bed with Gordon Brown. Well, that's because um, he'd
0: just lost the election, though, was it, really? Going into bed with the guy who'd been in power and, for such a long time.
1: Yes, big big factor, come back to that. But secondly, <laughs> secondly the Liberal Democrats were using the negotiation with Labour <clears throat> in order to bid up what they could get out of the mm. Tories. So, I don't think they were ever seriously negotiating with Labour. No. I think they were seriously negotiating with the Conservatives and they were using us to get a, a, a better deal. But let's be quite clear about forming a coalition. It takes three things. The arithmetic has to be right. There has to be a policy overlap, an agreement. Uh, and thirdly, the personal chemistry has to be in the right uh, place. In 2010, the arithmetic was not really in the right place. We had undershot. We were about 10 seats short of what we needed to negotiate seriously with the Liberal Democrats. As Polly says, Gordon Brown's policy offer was, came a little bit late, rather half-baked. He hadn't anticipated this and started to pave the way for it, unfortunately, although I think he made a rather more serious set of constitutional reform proposals than Polly is giving him uh, credit for. <laughs> and as for the personal chemistry, I mean, I remember sitting in one of those meetings with Gordon Brown on our side... Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander on the other. And we were talking, going around, talking about various things. And suddenly Danny opens his mouth and says, look, let's cut to the chase on this, uh, Gordon. The fact is that we don't like you and we don't want to serve under you. And my sort of mouth slightly dropped open and I sort of deflected the discussion in order to sort of smooth over the temporary <laughs> embarrassment uh, of, 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 of Danny's sort of rather sort of direct uh, o- observation. But that's what it was about. You know, they didn't want Gordon... Uh, the policy wasn't seriously gone into, and the arithmetic didn't
2: uh, add up. I, I think that that's all obviously right, but I think it underplays um, the achievement of both Nick Clegg and uh, David Cameron. Let's just uh, in informing that government, but let's concentrate on Nick Clegg because if you contrast it with what Jeremy Thorpe did in 1970, when the Liberal uh, sorry, sorry 74, 74 when the Liberal uh, Liberal Party yeah, when the Liberal Party found itself in a similar position, you can see. Nick Clegg was very well prepared. He had thought of, you know, this formulation, for example, that he would negotiate first with the party with the most seats. Um, the, the, the fact that he, and, and most votes, the fact that he'd boiled down uh, the priorities so that he knew the core things that he was negotiating. He had some clear idea where he was going to move. All these things, you know, we, because the Liberal Democrats came out the other end and lost a lot of seats, there's a tendency to think, well, the whole thing was a complete flop. Well, Nick Clegg is the first and possibly last uh, leader of that party in a century to, to gain power. And it was a real achievement which he gained through clear thinking... And quite a lot of courage. At the end of the day, now the other thing on Gordon Brown, um, click. I know that you added the word public school in to make this bromance thing sound worse, but the, um, <laughs> the, the because it's for everyone's favourite things. Like, oh no! Um, the, but the, are, are you denying the bromance? <laughs> yes, no, I I'm really, not denying really the bromance. Am. Are you the, denying the? You're well, denying the
0: bromance. Yeah, they. they it, oh it, come on, Polly. They I, were just. I, I think. Tra-
1: they,
3: well, look, I saw them together. A, a what about real, the gardens?
0: Of course, exchanging vows in the rose no, garden.
3: No, I
2: think they. That, managed...
3: the, the dynamic of that was was yeah, I guess bromancy, bromance light, <laughs> but having the way they operated together was always professional. They did have that ability to to collaborate and to talk honestly and openly with each other, but they were never. Friends and they were never, and and they're not friends now.
2: I would agree with that. And I think, but I think on the question of Gordon Brown, I mean, for large parts of your own political career, you found getting (laughs) into bed with Gordon (laughs) Brown difficult, right? Even though you were trying, (laughs) even though you were trying quite hard, Peter. So it's just a bit the other way around, but (laughs) let's not rake (laughs) over the coals. No, no, exactly. It was the other way around. I I completely take your part in that argument completely. Um, but 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 I just what I'm saying is that he's not an easy individual, and if. If the Liberal Democrats concluded that a relationship with Gordon Brown uh, would be hard, you know, well, Patricia Hewitt found it hard. Jeff Hoon found it hard. Um, James Purnell found it hard. David Miliband found it hard. So, of course, the Liberal Democrats would find it hard because he was a Mm. hard person. So, I think the fact that David Cameron was easier to have have a relationship with was a factor.
1: Dan is rightly described 2010 as a sort of watershed sort of development for the the Liberal Democrats. It might have come all the way uh, uh, at the first book end of the new Labour government Mm, in 1997 because there... Uh, Ashdown, Paddy Ashdown, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, and Tony Blair, had been talking and preparing and paving the way for a good two years for the possibility of a coalition uh, should the ninety-seven election not give a clear-cut uh, result. So there was a lot of m- meetings and dinners and going out and discussing policies as well. Uh, personal chemistry could not have been better between Ashdown uh, and Blair. But here's the point: the third issue, arithmetic. We completely overshot the runway oh, in, nin- about, yeah. in 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 1997, uh, and the the would be. Uh, coalition or governing arrangement between the two parties was unsettable to both parties.
0: So you had personal chemistry and policy, but the maths didn't work yeah. in the opposite direction. The arithmetic direction, in
2: the opposite di- yeah. direction. There's another thing which is important, which is Nick Clegg positioned the Liberal Democrats differently to previous li- leaders that came before him and came after him. He was nearer to a centrist leader, to, the, to what people think the Liberal Democrats are. But in fact, they're Most of their history are part of the centre-left, as they were at the formation of the Labour Party and as they are now. And that means that this question going forward, the Conservative Party, unless it can reach into the 40%, is going to find it difficult to coalesce with anyone.
1: Blair saw this in great historical terms. He thought this was an opportunity in 1997 to overcome the previous 100 years of fissure division between the two Uh, left parties, which in his opinion, I agree, had basically given the Tories almost the century uh, of, of government. And so, in a sense, what he wanted to do was not so much coalesce with the Liberal Democrats in 1997. He wanted to hoover up the Liberal Democrats, in 1997. He thought, you know, the SDPers who had broken away in the 1980s, the Liberal Democrats who were basically left to centre, that they should all be sort of subsumed into this huge new Labour uh, big tent. And he regretted afterwards, actually, that that, he missed that. He missed that opportunity. But fortunately... Because it really would have changed the landscape, changed the face of British electoral politics.
2: Fortunately, we're now in that position, right? So the, 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 the Liberal Democrats, admittedly, they've made this head-spinning decision to stay outside the government they're going to help Keir Starmer form by defeating the Conservatives in large numbers of places which is a view I can't understand but I suppose is mandated by the fact that they've got a separate political party. But I think that, by and large, the, you know this experience of coalition has now reunited the centre-left parties. They're just going to run in different places. And ultimately, it's sort of like an informal lib lab You act. see, what, I, well, think, but, what but, I think is that, just coming to the present
1: yeah. this year and the election taking place later this year, I think people are not pricing in sufficiently uh, the possibility... That Labour may fall somewhat below uh, the result that the opinion polls are currently indicating uh, they will obtain. Uh, th- these are these are these are artificial. Uh, this is an artificial lead, believe me. It's going to it's going to uh, contract, uh, and if you consider the swing that is required. Uh, By Labour to get an overall majority uh, at the election. It's something like 11 or 12%. 127 This is huge. And so I think that we we should. (laughs) I think, well, to be honest, I think there are some in my own party. There are also the Liberal Democrats
0: who should be just thinking. uh, Well, should they uh, be doing. Should should Starmers' team be doing some of the work that uh, the Oliver Letwins and David Camerons had done? At least think having it as an option in the draw, preparing for the possibility of a coalition. I must say, I think that the likelihood of a,
1: of a formal coalition is, is small. I think you're more likely to see the sort of arrangement that emerged following the uh, 1974 elections, which Danny referred to uh, earlier. Um, um, Jeremy Thorpe chose not uh, to prop up uh, uh, Ted Heath and his government because he thought that that government had been rejected Uh, by the electorate in February '74, but the electorate had also showed that they were unsure about Labour. They were not confident about ushering in a majority Labour government, and that was the result uh, 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 that was reflected in that sort of rather nuanced state of public uh, uh, opinion. By the way, I think in 2010, just as the public uh, rejected Labour and Gordon Brown, they were equally unsure about the Conservatives. They weren't completely convinced about uh, Cameron uh, and Osborne. And, you know, the electorate shows an uncanny knack of sort of getting the result that it sort of wants. And that's where the Liberal Democrats uh, come into play. And what you might find this year is if Labour falls back from its current lead, if Labour fails to um, uh, maintain its present momentum and political appeal, you may find the Liberal Democrats doing better than expected, uh, and the a result is somewhat more ambivalent uh, in, in reality than, it, than the opinion polls
3: are currently suggesting.
0: Polly, so what was your, if Peter's saying that Labour should at least think about it, should the Lib Dems be doing the same thing?
3: Well, I'm, I'm sure they are, uh, but it, it depends really how the Labour Party is thinking. If you're t- thinking in grand kind of hegemonic historical terms, then short. Sure, finding a way to coalesce Liberal Democrats and Greens into a kind of centre-left movement post-election would probably be a good idea. I don't think the Labour Party is thinking in that way. And of course, that's the opposite to what the Liberal Democrats would probably ask for, which is some kind of electoral reform. The, The Labour Party, we have to assume there will be a chunk of SNP uh, MPs, maybe not quite as many, but a chunk, and they have said that they will not support a Conservative government, and that means that the path for Labour to just sort of bulldoze through as a minority is, is pretty clear, it's and it's the path that. of least resistance.
2: Yeah. The Labour uh, Liberal Democrats will not constrain a Labour government; no. they will do the opposite of that. That the, their critique will entirely be the Labour Party has not gone far enough on green politics; it's not gone far enough on whatever it wants to do on the constitution; it's not spent enough in certain areas areas, it will will be the opposite. If people are thinking, well, you know, we're worried about a Labour government becoming too left-wing. I don't think they are worried about that, actually, by the way, but I think if they were, and the Liberal Democrats will constrain it because they're the centre party. That is not the dynamic, Mm. actually. The Liberal Democrats... At the moment, you can hold the view of the Liberal Democrats, official view, and be a member of the shadow cabinet or cabinet, but insofar as there's a separate party, they have any... It will always be to pull the Labour Party to the uh, left.
0: Poor Lib Paul poor Just on the subject of the bromance, uh, Polly, I've looked up a story, one of my favourite stories from 2010, when uh, Nick Clegg told The Sun that he'd been building an Ikea cupboard with David Cameron for um, baby uh, Florence to put her...
1: Yeah, told uh, you, told
0: you. I saw that <laughs> cupboard. That's all I need. That's <laughs> the
1: I'm sorry,
3: but if <laughs> you're if your romances, including building and Ikea the furniture... That they were putting it okay, together. Seriously, yeah. there is something wrong with okay, you. Fine. Like, that is not a romantic... I pity your David one. was very proud <laughs> of that <laughs> cupboard, <laughs> I remember.
0: Let's hear from you and the questions that you've sent in. Uh, this one is from Catherine, who's a fan in Paris.
3: Hi, how to win team. My name is Catherine and I live in France. Um, And like many expats, I've been out of the UK for more than 15 years. But now thanks to new legislation, I will be able
2: to vote in the upcoming uh, general election, which I am very happy about because many people like myself actually couldn't vote in Brexit, um, things which directly affect our rights. Um, so there are millions of people like me, and my question is, how do you think this could affect the upcoming u k general election? I also, I wanted to say I'm a big fan of the podcast, and especially peter
0: oh. Ooh. Well, do have to sound so surprised. <laughs> so go on then, Peter, tell Catherine, first of all, what difference is her being able to vote going to make? Hi, Catherine, I love you too. Um, I think your vote
1: is going to make uh, a difference and I think I would be more worried if I were a Conservative than Labour because I think a lot of expats feel let down over the government's negotiating uh, of right, expat rights uh, following Brexit. Polly?
3: Um... I think that we shouldn't have changed the rules and we should change the rules in the other way and that actually we should have uh, people who live in the UK voting about the future of the UK, more of them, people with permanent right to remain and definite leave to remain. And people who, uh, like my mother, who's lived in France for 25 years, like, she should vote in France. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. Danny? I
2: don't think this will make much of a difference. Oh, surprise, <laughs> oh! surprise. <laughs> No, 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 no. look, <laughs> S- Seriously, um, I don't think there's any reason to think it will be systematic. Yes. Right. It's, it's and no, and I don't know how la- I, the, the, the crucial proviso is I don't know how large it is. Obviously, large numbers of people voting will make a difference, but yeah. I don't know how. Well, I but they'll really also be spread right across the country because cause it's the old seat that they used to live in. Uh, there we
0: are. But I feel like we ticked off all the boxes there. If you'd like to send a love letter to Peter Madison, you can email how to win at thetimes.co.uk. Attach a voice note. We can play it next week. Uh, next week we'll be back with a box, hopefully with a box of chocolate vides Wells with from Polly Mackenzie. Uh, that was how to win election. i have Matt Chorley